Amid the chaos and conflict in the world, these people are actively seeking peace on earth. Peace between people is every day. It is meeting new people and how you treat them and behave towards them. From Middle East teens to peacekeepers in Sri Lanka. We are not talking about wishing and hoping and singing that something will change. We are talking about strategic, disciplined action. A parenting expert says no to any violence to a child. With punishment, the dialogue so often stops. With nonviolence, it's engagement. And a musician seeks an end to the death penalty. I'm opposed to the death penalty because of what it does to us. Also, Jimmy Carter. In order to maintain peace in a country, you really have to deal with the most uh, abject facets of life. And memories of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We need not use violence. That is another way. All ahead on Seeking Peace on Earth from Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, the producer of Peace Talks, the radio series that spotlights peacemaking efforts and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. According to Iroquois oral tradition, roughly a thousand years ago, there was a violent and chaotic state of affairs within and between the many Indian nations of what is now called North America. But a spiritual leader called Peacemaker arrived to bring the warring nations together, encouraging them to use their intellect instead of violence to solve conflicts. The Iroquois Confederacy was formed, and some say its practices provided a model for the emerging United States government. Orrin Lyons and John Mohawk are, respectively, from the Onondaga and Seneca nations of the Confederacy, also called the Haudenosaunee. Both are professors of American studies at the State University of New York at Buffalo. They talked about the Great Law of Peace in a Peace Talks episode narrated by Carol Boss. This is Orrin Lyons. Peace is not passive. Peace is very, very dynamic, and it requires a whole lot of effort. Uh, it's so easy to to just strike out in in anger, and very difficult to to uh, control yourself and to find another way to uh, to vent. And that's that's what we face, and that's how we have to deal with it. I think what's done very well by a woman uh, who wrote a who wrote a a, a law treatment. And that was Mary Christina Wood on the Oregon Law Review. She wrote this in 1944, and it's called The Politics of Abundance and the Politics of Scarcity. Politics of abundance for Indians was to always be respectful of uh, the natural world and to have ceremonies and to make sure that the next generations were taken care of. Indeed, uh, the uh, peacemaker said to our leaders that every decision we make must uh, regard the seventh generation coming. And, and we shouldn't think of ourselves, nor of our family, nor even our generation, but make our decision on behalf of seven generations. And uh, most Indian nations that I know, and I uh, know most of them, all have the same respect and reverence for, uh, for life and for the future and responsibility. So that was uh, politics of abundance. Politics of scarcity comes from our brothers. That is the idea of taking more than you need and taking uh, at the expense of your grandchildren. John Mohawk thinks that many Indian nations which have had a high respect for peace have long known what it takes to address conflict within communities and from without. Many nations had a peace chief as well as a war chief that held equal sway in responding to conflict scenarios. This, uh, this idea 
I think is really very relevant today because if you if you go to Washington or you go to London or anywhere, uh, world leaders today don't have a plan about how to address the violence of chaos. They haven't they haven't a clue. How do you how do you you know what, what the plan was to go to to some place and beat the army? Okay, you went there, you beat their army, but you didn't get the result you were hoping for. Nobody stepped forward and surrendered their sword, and the country itself didn't surrender. What you got was you just beat up their army. There's no, there's no right now. There's no agreed upon method. How do you re respond to it? The answer has been you use more force and more force and more force until you get to the point where you cannot apply any more force. You don't have any more force. You've, you've maxed out. But the chaos is still happening in this. I, I say that the Six Nations Confederacy under the Great Law actually was born in that kind of environment and devised ways to address that kind of environment. But there's a trick. <laughs> the, the people who are going to manage that, if you're, if you're going to stand for and say, okay, I'm going to lead the way out of that jungle, those people can never lie. They have to be completely honorable all the time. They can't take sides. They have to be neutral. They have to be peacemakers. Peacemakers aren't people with an agenda. They don't come to your country to take your forest. They don't come there to kill your buffaloes. They're there to end the violence. That's all. That's what I think the, the Six Nations Confederacy had as its thing. It was a culture, actually. The, the culture that was around the, the council was a culture of people who were dedicated to pursuing peace. Professors John Mohawk and Oren Lyons, both Haudenosaunee, a people governed by the great law of peace of the Iroquois Confederacy. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, featuring some compelling moments from the radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. In one of our programs, we reflected on the life and legacy of the late civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Peace Talks host Carol Boss talked by phone with the eldest daughter of Dr. King, Yolanda King, from her office in Los Angeles, where her company, Higher Ground Productions, is headquartered. Ms. King is an actress, author, and speaker who advocates for positive social change and peace. One of her themes is the pursuit of inner peace, which she says many of us tend to undermine with our own behavior. We do a whole lot of um, self-talk that we're not, many times we're not even aware of, that disturbs our place of peace. We buy into the chaos. We buy into uh, the conflicts. We buy into the craziness. Um, and, 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 and if you listen to yourself, I, 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 there was a time when I even recorded myself uh, during the course of a day, and I would just really pay attention to things that would come out, and I realized that I was speaking words. I was speaking about things that exacerbated my discomfort as opposed to supporting um, uh, a place of, of, of ease and a, a place of, uh, of grace and peace. And so that's one of the things when I hear people saying, you know, oh, I'm just, I'm crazed. I'm just running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Well, yeah, if you keep saying that, guess what? <laughs> that's exactly what you manifest. And uh, and so that's one of the, the tools that, that I have learned, um, as well as meditation. Meditation is such an invaluable, uh, incredibly uh, significant tool that takes time. It takes a real commitment and discipline, 
but my gracious, the benefits are just uh, just tremendous. If you could talk for a couple of moments about your 21st century take on race relations, you've said before that you don't really espouse a colorblind society, that it's naive and probably unhealthy. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Well, I think I remember seeing a T-shirt a couple of years ago, and it said, Love Sees No Colors. And I remember thinking, well, that doesn't really express what love does. Love loves all colors. It, love love sees everything. Love appreciates and and radiates and encompasses and embraces everything. So to pretend that we don't see, I think is not it's not healthy and it's not natural. And I don't think we as humanity can ever reach that place because I think it's a very unrealistic way of looking at the world. In fact, we should really actually be more tuned in to the beauty, the diversity, the different colors, the the rainbow, this just this pop- potpourri of of vibrancy that is the human family. We need to focus on an appreciation of this, this in, these incredible differences because they are always going to be there. They're not going away. And if we try to pretend that they don't exist, then obviously they're gonna, we're going to come up and, and bump heads and, and have all of these conflicts. We're always going to be different. I, w- I was just curious um, what you thought your father's foremost concerns would be in, in today's world and the challenges for him I have to always um say before I <laughs> I answer questions like that that you know my father was ahead of his time when he was with us and, and so who knows where um his focus would be it's it's hard to say but I certainly believe that one of the things that he would be most concerned about is the fact that we continue to be so bent on using militarism to solve every problem that we have that's one of the things that I know he would be focusing on, reminding us so strongly that this is just, it's never worked. It's, all it does is, is create vengeance and, 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 and vindictiveness. I know that would be an issue, as well as the fact that the gulf between the haves and the have-nots still remains far too large, and um, that those two issues he was championing at the end of his days, um, and unfortunately... We continue to be plagued by them. Oh, my friends, if that is any one thing that I would like for you to remember this evening, it is the fact that somebody must have some sense in this world. Somebody must have sense enough to meet hate with love. Somebody must have sense enough to meet physical force with soul force. If we will but try this way, we will be able to change these conditions and yet at the same time win the hearts and souls of those who have kept these conditions alive. We need not use violence. That is another way. A way as old as the insights of Jesus of Nazareth. As modern as the techniques of Mohandas K. Gandhi. That is another way. A way as old as Jesus saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use them. 
And as modern as Gandhi saying through Thoreau, non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. That is another way. This is what we've got to see. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. recorded in the early 60s, and we heard from his eldest daughter, Yolanda King, who is offering her own take on her father's peacekeeping legacy through her work as an actress, speaker, author, and producer. Yolanda King also told us that although her father is remembered as a serious man who was deeply committed to his cause, to her he was a playful and caring father. And Ms. King gives a lot of credit to both her father and mother for modeling principles of peace in their parenting of her. Peaceful parenting advocate Ruth Beaglehole says you don't have to be a world-renowned peacemaker to model nonviolence as a parent. But as she told Carol Boss in one of our programs, you do have to have a broad definition of nonviolence and a commitment to making true connections with children to nurture a well-adjusted and peace-appreciating youngster. Nonviolence means using no violence towards a child's mind, their heart, or their body. It is not the definition of child abuse which says that you can spank a child and punish a child as long as you don't leave a bruise. My definition, the definition we use, is zero tolerance for all violence. Ruth, would you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by violence to the mind and the heart? So, the violence of the mind is where children are told that they're stupid, that they don't know, that they can't learn. Um, You know, you don't know how to do this. How come you don't know how to do this? How many times have I got to tell you how to do something? Rather than, this is hard. You're learning. It takes a lot of trying to learn how to do something new. You're a really smart person. Violence to the heart is, oh my goodness, violence to the heart is so often, well, it's a combination of all of these things, name calling, when we spank a child, when we pull their ears, when we slap them on the mouth, when we threaten to wash their mouths out with soap, or we do wash their mouths out with soap, and, or, we, or we put down their, their creative talents and their mind. All of this goes to the heart. I must be, I'm not a good person. I'm not smart. I'm not, I don't know how to do things right. I'm not as equal to other people. I'm bad. Besides the everyday acts that um, you're talking about, there's also the larger larger issue of this being a human rights issue. Is that not right? Right, right. Now, children are the last group to be protected. You know, we have child abuse laws, and as I said earlier, child abuse laws say that we can spank children as long as we don't leave a bruise. Well, that, for those of us who worked in the domestic violence, the early beginnings of the domestic violence movement, we weren't, that's not what we said about women. We wanted the violence to stop. If that's what we believe, then we have to have a social justice movement for children. And a social justice movement for children says that our communities, our schools, our society needs to be safe havens, a place where children can trust that the adults are able to be in relationship with the child in a way where they use their power to connect 
rather than power over. Do you have any suggestions, perhaps a few key strategies for parents who are listening now, um, how to create a more peaceful home and more peaceful relationships between family members? Yes. Number one, know our own angers. Know what triggers us. No, think about the role models we had when we were young. Were, what did they mean to us? Do I want to be like my mother was to me, my father? Do I want to do it differently? Spend a lot of energy understanding my anger. Learning how to be angry without hurting a child, without yelling. My child is never the cause of my anger. I choose my anger. So a parent, we practice people taking a step back, breathing, counting. We begin every parenting class with some Tai Chi exercises, helping people to say it's about me, not about my child. Even being able to say to my kids, I'm feeling really angry right now. I can't talk to you about this. I need to calm myself down. I'm going to breathe. So when I do talk to you, we can, I, won't, I won't hurt you. I won't, especially if they're breaking the cycle. B, understand that all of human behavior is motivated by needs. So every child, and this is the most beautiful piece of this nonviolent philosophy to me, every human being, every child is motivated by the best intent to meet a need to solve a problem. So you have that little two-year-old picking up that huge pitcher of milk, you know, and, and then it spills. Well, we so often, we place the emphasis on the spill rather than, my God, this child is really trying to be independent, manage something. They've watched mummy and daddy do it. They're wanting so much to do it. They just don't have the coordination. So rather than, Oh, that milk is spilt again, you know, I, you know, and a slap on the hand. You really want to pour your own milk. Let me get you a pitcher and put a little bit in it so you'll be able to manage. That big pitcher is so heavy, isn't it? So it's, if I can understand that my child's motivation is always with the best intention, I let go of bad behavior that needs to be punished. There is no bad behavior. There is a child, unfortunately, maybe choosing not such a good way to meet a need. So as a parent, what's the motivation here? What's my child feeling? What need are they trying to satisfy? Hmm, let me put myself in their shoes. What could they be feeling? What could they be wanting? With punishment, the dialogue so often stops. With nonviolence, it's engagement, figuring it out, understanding the motivation. Ruth Beaglehall is founder of the Center for Nonviolent Education and Parenting in Los Angeles. Links to the organization's website, as well as links to the work of all of the guests heard on Peace Talks, can be found online at peacetalksradio.com. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. 
In a moment, young people from opposing sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict speak their truth at a camp in New Mexico. That's when we return. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, featuring highlights from recent programs in the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. For the last several summers, teenage girls from all corners of the troubled Middle East have come to a summer camp in Glorieta, New Mexico. And at the end of the camp, the teens face an audience and deliver original monologues inspired by their experiences back home and at the camp. My goal was only the first year was to have them sit in one room and listen. That's Rachel Kaufman, the founder and director of the Creativity for Peace Camp. I didn't expect anything else, but what's happening is they're, we have found they're not only listening, but they're beginning to understand. They're beginning to change their points of view. They have extraordinary moments of reconciliation. They have moments of forgiveness. We don't ask them to change their minds or their opinions. They're free to think as they wish. But what happened is they, they within four or five days, they, they form extraordinary friendships. It's based on this, the, the phrase from Knudsen that an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. So once they hear the stories and they, they find the commonality of fear or the commonality of losing a loved one, once they see the other not as the enemy but as a human being, then all the doors open to understanding. The girls approach the microphone in groups of three, each representing a different side of the Mideast conflict. A Palestinian Muslim girl named Sabrine wears a headscarf and speaks through a translator. Sometimes I feel that my pen is my land. When I write... I try to write from my heart. My pen is the land I go to when I feel full of anger, happiness, longing. I would need many notebooks to write about checkpoints, as they are the worst thing I have ever experienced in my life. When I left Gaza and came to America with my friends to attend the peace camp, we had to pass through a number of checkpoints. Each time, it felt like I was being robbed of my self-respect when the soldiers spoke to us slowly, forcefully, and with a teasing insolence that was so humiliating. They asked us to take some of our clothes off, and it felt like someone drained my soul if they weren't so concerned about world opinion, I'm sure they would have asked us to undress completely, standing naked in front of everyone. I hope that one day my land will be free so I could live in it in peace and without checkpoints. 
Samuel is a Jewish Israeli girl. During periods of frequent bombings, there were times when there were attacks almost every single day. I was too scared to ride the bus to school. Instead, I would walk an hour in each direction, even though I had to leave earlier in the morning. Eventually, I decided that I could not go on living in fear forever. If God decreed that I am to die in an attack or lose a family member, I must accept my fate. I told myself that the best way to fight terror is by becoming a better person. I must become strengthened by the fear and pain that I experience. Diana is a Palestinian Christian. A person has to love and appreciate his land and benefit his land. As a Palestinian, I feel pain, pain because my land has been taken from me by those in power. My freedom has been taken. The freedom of living in peace, security, and safety on a beautiful land. Shoshan, a Jewish Israeli girl, is flanked by Miriam and Diana, both Palestinians. Last year, my mother and her friend collect money and bought 300 school bags, notebooks, pens, and pencil boxes with, mat- with much effort. We filled them with the notebooks and the pencil boxes, and, we- and when it was all ready, a group went to Rumane, a village near the Janine refugee camp, and gave these bags to the Palestinian children. Four months later, I went with my with my mom to Rumane to see how else we could help. On the way home, we saw all the children went with the bags. That we have given them returning from school. As Shoshan fights back tears, Diana from Palestine puts her arm around her. It was a very moving experience for me. As soon as I saw the children, I felt I have made a difference in the world. When I helped the children, I felt like it's a small act. But when I saw them, went with the school bags on their back, I understood that the small act was greater than I had thought. Their only contact with Jews is soldiers, who of course they see as the enemy. I wanted them to know that there are people who care about them, and some of these people are Jews. Many feel that the land of Israel is theirs, but in the truth, no land belongs to anyone. All land belongs to the world. My name is Luzian. I am a Christian Arab girl who lives in Israel in a small village in the north where I was born. I think that each letter in the word peace has a meaning. P means people. E means equality. A means acceptance. 
C means communication, and E means education. There are so many meanings to the word peace. For example, there is a peace between a person and himself. This is a peace that is sitting you with yourself. Peace between people is every day. It is meeting new people and how, and how you treat them and behave towards them. We all need to have hope for peace because it will be a wonderful thing in the world, especially between Israel and Palestine and also in Iraq and any other place that is not peaceful. I feel that peace is the most beautiful thing in life and when peace will come to the world, all the sadness will go away from the people. Arab, Israeli, and Palestinian teenage girls speaking of their fears and hopes at the end of the 2005 Creativity for Peace camp in Glorieta, New Mexico, a place where bonds of friendship were often forged between girls from opposing sides in the ongoing Middle East conflict. You're listening to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. If the Middle East is one of the best-known conflict regions in the world, among the many lesser-known trouble spots is Sri Lanka where a fledgling organization of peacemakers, known as the Nonviolent Peace Force, is trying to calm tensions between warring factions. Mel Duncan is the organization's executive director, who talked with Peace Talks host Carol Boss about the technology of peacekeeping that his workers are applying in Sri Lanka. We are not talking about people going in and wishing and hoping and singing that something will change. We are talking about strategic, disciplined action. The four strategies include accompaniment, and that is simply unarmed bodyguards. Uh, What we found as we worked in various parts of the world was, first of all, there are creative and courageous peacemakers in the most violent places in the world today. And what we found cross-culturally is, more often than not, that work is being done by women in terms of the -the on-the-ground peacemaking work. And what those women told us around the world is isolation kills us. If there is not a political cost to our death, we're much more likely to be disappeared. And so accompaniment merely provides a unarmed bodyguard to a vulnerable human rights worker or a peacemaker so as to increase that cost of their assassination. It has worked very effectively in places like Guatemala and Colombia. The second strategy that we found that uh, works is that of presence, which is uh, where larger numbers of trained internationals go to a uh, vulnerable village for example, or a contested border, and by their presence there and the understanding that they bring the eyes of the world with them, they uh, reduce the amount of violence uh, in those areas. This worked very effectively in Nicaragua in the mid-1980s during the, the Contra War, when what we found was if there were groups of internationals, especially people from the United States in villages that were being routinely attacked by the Contra from Honduras, that if um, there was an international presence, those villages were not attacked for very simple political and public relations purposes. 
A third strategy that we employ is monitoring. Uh, this is something that lots of listeners will be uh, familiar with. Uh, for example, the um, Carter Center does this a, a lot. I think it was probably most effectively used in South Africa during the transition from a uh, apartheid society to an open democratic society when of course it was the South Africans that were doing the work but they had the support and the monitoring of internationals. The fourth strategy that we found that works is interpositioning where trained, disciplined civilians place themselves between two conflicting parties and serve as a buffer zone. So Mel, perhaps you can describe to us a particular conflict um, maybe in Sri Lanka, including the obstacles that had to be overcome and some of the methods utilized to resolve it. A little over a year ago, uh, there was a faction that split off from the Tamil Tigers, which is one of the two major combatants in Sri Lanka. Violence ensued. Military forces from the main Tiger uh, organization came down to the east and staged against the the rebel faction. They staged in a in an area uh, that was rather remote. However, there were three villages that were between the two um, uh, conflicting parties. So our teams went into those villages and let it be known to both of the combatant factions that uh, civilians were not to be drawn in to this conflict and that the, the uh, villages were to be kept out. And uh, if that didn't happen, this would become an international incident. And in fact, uh, they did limit civilian casualties and the, the uh, violence was kept out of the village. Now, there were a whole host of things that preceded that. One of the things that was most important was that our teams needed to establish themselves in those areas and to build trust over a matter of months, not over just a few weeks, but being there and people getting to know them and seeing that they were there for the long term before that they uh, could be trusted to be called upon. Uh, there were also technical kinds of issues. Uh, it was an area where there was no cell phone coverage. So we had to get satellite phones to our teams so that they could communicate with the outside and make sure that that the world did know and that if we needed to um, activate our uh, international emergency response network that we could. Uh, it also required a great deal of, of training and discipline on the uh, uh, part of our team members to know that they were not being evacuated from a conflict that in fact they were walking into a conflict and that uh, requires both a tremendous amount of team building and team trust but also inner work and that inner work comes from many different places uh, for uh, our various team members I hope I can ask you about this a year ago your youngest son a member of the Minnesota National Guard was called up and sent to Iraq. Is he still there, by the way? No, uh, he returned after a year. Well, I imagine it must have been a very conflicting time for you. I can't read into your mind, but just in terms of the work that you do. It's uh, really been the most jagged contradiction of my life. I, I love my son dearly. I, I certainly oppose what uh, he did, 
and uh, uh, continue to uh, spend uh, every day uh, working for a different approach. Uh, at the same time, I do respect the commitment and the sacrifice that he made. The morning that I took him out to the armory, a cold morning in December, which we can have in Minnesota, and I stood there and just looked around at the young men and women, some of them not so young, some of them in their early 40s, who were getting ready to leave for at least a year and to go into very, very violent situations for something that they believed in that was bigger than themselves. And as I reflected, I realized that those of us working for peace and justice have to be ready and willing to make that same level of sacrifice. Nonviolent Peace Force Director Mel Duncan with Carol Boss. Two perennially hot topics, nuclear armaments and the death penalty, will be the focus of our next segments. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. More after this break. Peace Talks radio series explores peacemaking and nonviolent strategies to help people resolve conflict in their daily lives. Is the ongoing debate over the death penalty a peace issue? Well, death penalty opponent and musician Steve Earle thinks so, and he talks about it at most stops on his concert tours. I don't oppose the death penalty to try to save someone on, on death row. I'm opposed to the death penalty because of what it does to us. If the government kills someone, then I'm killing someone. And I simply object to the damage that that does to my spirit. I wrote a song for a film uh, called Dead Man Walking. Uh, it's uh, the people that, that advocate the death penalty, uh, people that support the death penalty in their defense. Most people advocate it and support it without knowing anything about it. Now I've seen them fight like lions, boys. I've seen them go like clams. I've had to drag them when they could not stand. I heard their mamas crying when they heard the big door slam. I've seen the victim's family holding hands. Last night I dreamed that I woke up with straps across my chest Something cold and black pumped through my lungs Even Jesus couldn't save me though I know he did his best He don't live on this unit one I oppose it having witnessed an execution in the state of Texas. 
It was a very strange experience, a very surreal experience. I mean, um, human beings really want to live. And I watched a relatively healthy, considering he'd been in prison for 13 years, big, strong, 37-year-old man put to death. And, and he spoke to the victim's family members first, and he apologized, and he cried. And then he started singing Silent Night. And what I didn't know at the time was that was his prearranged um, signal with the warden. And when he got to the words mother and child, he all it was like all the air blew out of his lungs at once. It was like, And it made a really loud noise because there was a microphone hanging above his head. And he, he couldn't hear us, but we could hear him. It was like, huh! It was one of the loudest sounds I've ever heard. And his head pitched forward with enough force that his glasses, big, heavy, plastic prison-issue glasses, bounced off, landed on his chest, and fell on the floor. And then he didn't move again. Um... And um, it seemed pretty violent to me. The world turn around without me. The sun will come up in the east. Shining down on all of them that hate me. I hope my going brings them peace. That's part of Steve Earle's song, Over Yonder, written in the voice of John Nobles, a convicted double murderer who invited Steve to witness his 1998 execution by the state of Texas. Clearly, Steve Earle and others believe that executing criminals does not model nonviolent conflict resolution. Yet 37 states in the nation still have the death penalty. Polls on the issue indicate a nation split, and the figures depend on how the question is asked. Typically, if asked, do you favor or oppose the death penalty for persons convicted of premeditated murder? Lately, 65 to 70 percent say, yes, they favor the death penalty. The number of those in favor of that question has been downtrending in recent years from its high of 80 percent in 1994. When asked, do you favor the death penalty or prefer to see it replaced with life imprisonment with no hope for parole and the prisoner working to raise money for the victim's families, Generally, 55 to 60 percent favor that alternative strategy offered in the question. In figures from late 2002, there were about 3,700 prisoners carrying death sentences in the 37 states that still have the death penalty. In some of those states, legislatures are debating the issue. One state that grappled with it recently was New Mexico in its 2005 legislative session. In hearings, representatives heard many of the arguments against the death penalty that we're hearing from Steve Earle today. But they also heard from death penalty supporters. Reporter Deborah Martinez gathered some of that testimony for us. Lawmakers heard from people like Mike Bowen, a retired state police officer who spoke on behalf of law enforcement. We in the law enforcement community believe that the death penalty works. 
and we believe it is a deterrent that's been proven to us. Donna McNevin's father was shot dead at a KOA campground, and she spoke out in favor of the current law, warning that repealing it would invite killers to New Mexico. Will we be telling murderers from other states to come to our state because they will not be held responsible for the actions that they have chosen to take? Are we saying it's okay to brutally murder? Are we telling them that New Mexico has just given them the green light to continue to murder as there are no penalties of death? Musician and activist Steve Earle. I've seen people that were still very much angry and, and witnessed executions and swore that they felt better, but I haven't seen any witness of the, I haven't seen any healing from those people in the long term running into them. But I've seen more people who opposed the death penalty, who had lost members of their own families to violence, and those people are healing. That's something I can I can testify to. I've watched Bud Welch. He's lost a daughter in, in the Oklahoma City bombing. He got to know Timothy McVeigh's father, which is a pretty incredible act of reconciliation. And I see these people getting better. Musician Steve Earle on his opposition to the death penalty. One of the topics covered on a recent edition of Peace Talks, the radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. When the power of atomic weapons was unleashed by the United States at the end of World War II in 1945, a new challenge to the hope for world peace was unleashed with it. Even while the bombs were being created, and certainly afterwards, this central question has been debated. How can we prevent their use? Many have wondered, how can we eliminate them entirely, insisting that world peace can't be achieved without complete abolition of the weapons? Well, to others, the existence of nuclear weapons has mostly meant security. They believe the deterrent power of these arsenals actually helps keep the peace. Dr. Zia Mian is familiar with all these sides of the nuclear arms debate. He's a research staff member and lecturer in the Woodrow Wilson School for Public and International Affairs at Princeton University, and his work on this issue seeks to provide the technical basis for policy initiatives in nuclear arms control, disarmament, and nonproliferation particularly in South Asia. Here's Peace Talks host Carol Boss with Dr. Zia Mian. In terms of the concept of uh, nuclear deterrent, it assumes that a nation's possession of nuclear weapons is supposed to deter attacks by other nuclear nations and thus prevent war between the nuclear armed states. Now, this has been the argument for nuclear testing and nuclear armament, that it can help keep peace. You're from Pakistan and have written and spoken extensively of the nuclear crisis in that region, perhaps using Pakistan and India as an example. Let me ask you, does nuclear armament provide a nation with security? Is it a successful deterrent? Well, there's no evidence whatsoever from the case of the history of India and Pakistan that nuclear weapons offer any kind of so-called deterrent or any kind of stability or reduce the likelihood of war or even prevent a state from being defeated if war begins. Um, and in India and Pakistan tested their nuclear weapons uh, in May of 1998. A year later, Pakistan sent troops in disguise into the Indian part of Kashmir. And we had a war between two nuclear armed states. And despite, and both countries threatened to use nuclear weapons against each other. And yet they kept fighting. Their nuclear weapons were not enough to stop them going to war. 
They were not enough to stop them fighting the war. They were not enough to stop them from threatening to use nuclear weapons against each other. And the war was eventually resolved when the Prime Minister of Pakistan came to the United States and said, look, I've got myself into a situation I can't get out of. Help. And it was diplomacy that finally settled that, rather than either country having nuclear weapons or the United States weighing in with its nuclear weapons. And so I think you know that's an important lesson to learn. The second lesson that we've all learned since India and Pakistan had their nuclear tests is that the old argument that if they had nuclear weapons, they wouldn't need huge armies and conventional weapons and therefore they could reduce military spending because war was going to be deterred. Military expenditure has gone up massively. In one year, India increased its military spending by more than the total military budget of Pakistan. And the next year it did it again. So what did Pakistan do? It further pushed its people into poverty, further took money away from development, poured it into its military budget, tested more ballistic missiles. It's hard to point to any security benefit that has come to either country from having had nuclear weapons. But that was a lesson that was there to be learned from the history of the Cold War. That in 1949, when the U.S. nuclear monopoly was broken by the Soviet Union testing its nuclear weapons, we didn't see them say, okay, okay, you have nuclear weapons, we have nuclear weapons, we know we can't fight nuclear war because we have a deterrent, so let's just stop this nonsense. No, they started building more and more and more nuclear weapons, which means they were not being deterred. They were preparing to fight, and they just thought that if we have enough nuclear weapons in a war, we can overwhelm the other side. And so we had this terrible scenario where the U.S. and the Soviets built many tens of thousands of nuclear weapons. An even more important lesson that we've learned about central to this question of deterrence that you ask is that with the end of the Cold War, which was now almost 15 years ago, and the disappearance of the Soviet Union and the end of communism in the Soviet Union as an ideology that the U.S. sought to confront, the weapons have not gone away. So what is being deterred when there is no enemy anymore? The weapons have become autonomous. They've taken on a life and a logic of their own, which goes beyond any possible threat of war between the United States and Russia. And so, you know, in a funny sort of way, the lessons that we can learn from the experience of the United States have been repeated in the experience of Pakistan and India, that nuclear weapons have only brought conflict, more military expenditure, and the prospect that even when countries are supposed to be at peace, they will keep their nuclear weapons anyway. Since the Manhattan Project was done in almost complete secrecy, would it be correct to say that there was very little public debate over whether the U.S. should develop these weapons? No, there was no public debate. These things are almost always done in secret. No country has announced in advance that it's going to go off and build nuclear weapons not even to its own people, and often not even to its own government. Congress was not told about the Manhattan Project. In Great Britain, which has been a democracy for a very long time, most parts of the British government did not know that Britain had launched a nuclear weapons program. The second thing is, though, that even within those programs, there have been profound doubts among the scientists themselves about what they've been doing. During the Manhattan Project, when Germany surrendered, there were many scientists who said, we should stop the project now. The bomb hadn't been built. 
the decision makers in Washington, basically it was the president, since Congress didn't know about it, said, no, we're going to do it anyway. Right? And the scientists actually wrote a petition which they sent to the president asking them not to finish the project, but it went nowhere. The third thing, and that's perhaps the most important part that has been buried in history for a very long time, is that once nuclear weapons come into public scrutiny, in every country people are encouraged to think about them in terms of deterrence and national security. Whereas what you actually see underneath and behind the veil is a debate that is actually very moral, in, couched in terms of right and wrong. And the clearest example of that is that in 1949, when uh, the Soviet Union tested its nuclear weapons, the U.S. was thinking about should it make a hydrogen bomb? And they asked some of the same scientists who had built the atomic bomb, led by Robert Oppenheimer, to set up a committee to ask the question, should the U.S. build a hydrogen bomb? Could it and should it? And they said, yes, we can build a hydrogen bomb, but we should not because it is a weapon of genocide. And it's not common to find scientists using language like this, but the report that they wrote was declassified, and we know what they said. Having asked for their opinion, having received their opinion, which was clearly a moral one, not a scientific one, the U.S. government went ahead and built hydrogen bombs and built them by the tens of thousands. And yet the public were never told that this was the advice the government had been given about nuclear weapons, that this is what the scientists thought about it. Because if they had, they may have got a different public response. And so part of it, unfortunately, is that not only is the decision-making done in secret, but what's presented as the basis for the decision-making, that these are the terms within which debate can be had, are also picked by governments to take out many of the things that actually we now know were there. Princeton University's Dr. Zia Mian with Carol Boss. I'm Paul Ingalls, and we'll close our program with a few minutes with former President Jimmy Carter. Good morning, this is Jimmy Carter. I talked with Mr. Carter a few months after he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. He was also marking the 20th anniversary of the Carter Center, which he established to advance human rights, alleviate human suffering, and promote peace. The, the Center's efforts to address hunger, uh, poor health, and oppression around the world obviously ring true to the humanitarian in each of us, but your books and talks make a connection between these desperate conditions and conflict and war in countries that can ultimately impact everyone on the globe. Could you talk about that a little bit and, and offer some examples? Well, one of the things that I've learned in the last 20 years since I left the White House, much more clearly than I did when I was president, is that there's no way to separate, you know, a commitment to justice and peace and freedom and democracy and human rights and environmental equality and the alleviation of suffering. So that's why we have seen that in order to maintain peace in a country, you really have to deal with the most uh, abject facets of life because quite often when people have no hope and no self-respect and no prospect for a bare existence, they tend to turn to anger and begin a, a civil war or lash out at their neighbors. So you, you can't separate the alleviation of suffering or environmental degradation where they lose their land and lose their streams from their inclination to despise their leaders or even to hate you know, distant success stories like in America. So they're all interrelated. That's the best basic point. 
wonder if you could recount one or two personal moments that are etched in your mind as emblematic of the good that the Carter Center has been able to do over 20 years. Any faces or encounters kind of stand out? Well, a number of them. For instance, guinea worm is one of the most horrible diseases ever known on Earth. And when we started to eradicate guinea worm, and this has been the Carter Center, one of the Carter Center's projects, uh, we we found three and a half million cases in 22 countries, uh, about 23,000 villages. We've been in every one of those villages and taught the people what caused the disease, drinking filthy water, as a matter of fact, and, and how to correct it. And now we've cut that down from three and a half million to about 70,000, which, as you can see, is a 98% reduction. And so to go into a village and see people, maybe two-thirds of a total population, unable to walk around, lying on, on, on the ground with guinea worms coming out of their bodies, and to teach them how to correct it and go back a year later, and there will be zero guinea worm. And those people, for the rest of their lives, will never see another case of guinea worm. So this is a very gratifying thing. One time I was riding in a big entourage uh, with the leaders of a, of a state in Nigeria, and there was a big sign on the side of the road that I'll always remember, held up by little school children, and said, Watch out, guinea worms. Here comes Jimmy Carter. So, you know, that really is a kind of memorable thing that I remember. We've done the same thing with other diseases, including rubber blindness and trachoma that causes blindness. And so it's very uh, gratifying to me to go into those countries and see what a little bit of advice and a tiny bit of help will do to let them overcome their uh, terrible suffering. Well, and finally, you and Rosalind, as co-directors of the center, talk now about scaling back your active role. Is that a hard process for a couple of action people like you two? And, and what are your hopes for the ongoing future of the center then? Well, we've been doing that over a period of time anyway. Where I, I, Rosalind and I used to have to do everything at the Carter Center, you know, personnel, budgets, uh, planning, conferences, and everything else. Now other people do that for us. And, we, for instance, in this hemisphere, we have 35 other presidents and prime ministers who have served like me in top positions who are part of the Carter Center uh, Council. And when I can't go to, say, Dominican Republic to help hold an honest election, I've got that array of other leaders in this hemisphere that can go and represent the Carter Center there. So it'll be a, a permanent organization. And uh, I think winning the Nobel Peace Prize for the work of the Carter Center, basically, is going to help strengthen that prospect for the future. President Jimmy Carter, thanks for your service to the world and thanks for talking with us today. I've really enjoyed it. Good luck to you all. To hear the entire programs from which these excerpts came or to link to more resources, you can visit us online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also sign up for a monthly newsletter alerting you to our latest programs. Peace Talks is produced by Good Radio Shows Incorporated, a nonprofit organization creating radio programs and online content meant to inform, inspire, and improve the human condition. Support for the series comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, the Peace Tales CD Project, and from tax-deductible contributions from listeners like you. Our theme music was composed and performed by Allie Adelman. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening. Thank you.